I'm going to tell you in this uh, section, I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, the church planting initiatives that we've been involved in as a partnership. I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, how our region historically is under-churched. Uh, and uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what uh, we've been doing. The northwest of England is a part of the country where the Reformation uh, never really historically bit in the, the, what it did in the southeast. The great Reformation that happened in the 16th century was largely, no, no not exclusively, was largely a southeast and southwest phenomenon. It was a southern thing. Now, I live just south of a, a town called Preston. That is Priest's Town. It's a, it is a largely still Catholic uh, area. We are underrepresented with uh, Bible teaching churches, yet we have this population of 7 million or so uh, people. Let me say that I am no expert at church planting. I have been to the Christian books, bookshop. I bought most of the books, most of them American, uh, on church planting. I've read a number of them. And the thing I've discovered, having read a number, I must have read 10 books on church planting in the last five years. The thing I have learnt about church planting is you don't need to be an expert on church planting to church plant because of the theology we have about church. I assume you agree with me that you have a church established on whichever kind of breadth of definition you go for, but for a church to be established, you need people, a Bible, and someone to teach it, or more than one to teach it. Is that right? Is that, is that, what a, is that a church, if you've got Christians meeting regularly, you've got a Bible that's open in front of them, and you've got some people who can teach the Bible, that that is a church. Now, it seems to me that, that, that I've stated that in about 10 words. Now, I'm going to have to work hard to string that out to be a 250-page resource manual <laughs> to sell in the popular bookshops, but there you go, I'll work on it. Given that that is what church planting's all about, and it doesn't need a huge, thick textbook to describe it or to explain how to do it, I'm wanting to say that church planting is deceptively easy, and yet at the same time is frustratingly difficult. It's deceptively easy theologically, and yet is frustratingly difficult to bring about, and I'll give you some of the reasons uh, for that. I am going to be almost of necessity uh, anecdotal this afternoon, and uh, forgive me for that. Uh, I'll describe real situations. This is being recorded, so I'm going to be kept reasonably honest in how I describe uh, the things that are going on, because people back home may well listen to this, and they can work out whether I've been honest with you or not. Let me first begin with and one of the things we've discovered in the last few years in the northwest of England, where we've seen as a partnership about 30 churches planted, it is a drop in the ocean. Let me say that to begin with. It's a drop in the ocean. The population of our region is 7 million. If 5% of those were in Bible teaching churches, that would be 350,000 people. If they went to what would be large churches in our region of, say, 200, that would be three. That would be, what, uh, 1,750 churches. If they each had two pastors, that would be 3,500 pastors. If we've got 350 pastors and 175 churches, then I'm being generous in the label of evangelical. 
But I have detected that there are varying reasons for church planting as I've surveyed the 30 or so churches that we have planted over the last 30. None of this is rocket science. You know all of these things. Here's the first motivation for church planting I've detected, and it is about reaching new people. Uh, it's about reaching new people. I'm going to give you uh, three reasons. I've, none of these are mutually exclusive, so there's overlap in all of these, but I've detected these three reasons. First, reaching new people. Now, the statistics demand that we plant churches to reach new people. In our patch, we just cannot allow the status quo to continue because the number of people that our existing number of churches can reach is very finite. It is defined finite, finitely by all kinds of factors. It's defined finite, finitely by geography. So the places where our churches already exist defines in some measure the kind of the number of people that we're likely to reach. So in the patch where I am, it is unlikely that people, just because of sociological kind of history, it is unlikely that people are going to travel more than four or five miles to come to the church that I go to. That, that'll be different in different places. That is different, I think, in some city centres. But I don't live in a city centre. I live in a bog-standard town, a town of about 40,000 people. And just the demographics and sociology of where we are means people are unlikely to move, to go to travel, to go to church, more than four or five miles. That is the sphere of influence of our local church. Now, if you were to take all of the local churches that are evangelical in our patch and draw the kind of circle of evangelistic cutting-edge influence, and that circle would be different in different places. So in our most rural areas of northern Cumbria, sheep farming land, the kind of circle that a church might have in terms of influence, in terms of geography, will be quite small. Some of our bigger cities like Liverpool and Manchester will be much bigger in terms of circles. But if you were to take a map of our region and plot those circles, you will discover that there are huge areas where no circles overlap. There'll be some areas where a number of circles overlap, but there are some places where no circles overlap. Now, we cannot be content, can we, with that as a geographical uh, situation. We've got to be, certainly we in our patch, we've got to be serious uh, uh, about reaching those kind of places. The statistics demand that we uh, see the gospel reaching those areas. And the Great Commission demands it too. So reaching new people has been a strong motivation for us getting churches uh, planted. Now reaching new people and planting churches has worked out into two particular kinds of church plant. The first has been geographical. That is, as we've plotted the map, and we, we've done this, as a, together, a partnership together of churches, as we've plotted the map and plotted where our circles of influence for the gospel are likely to be, we have discovered the, bl the blanks and we've thought to ourselves, we must work to see churches planted there. Now, we've we, we, whether rightly or wrongly, we have prioritised some of those where we've seen the gaps, but we have worked out that there are gaps there and we've got to plant into them. The second thing that we've noticed uh, are sociological areas of new people. 
In other words, we've worked out that there are specific sections of either whole communities or parts of communities that we have not been reaching. And in our area of the Northwest, that largely has been the lower middle class kind of socioeconomic groupings. I don't know, I know nothing about Australia at all, so I'm not saying anything about you, but generally speaking in England over the last hundred years, evangelicalism has been strongest and therefore evangelism has been strongest because you believe like me, don't you, that e evangelism only happens where there is evangelical theology. Doesn't, that, that's not necessarily the case that it happens, but you can't have evangelistic work if you haven't got an evangelical theology. That uh, broadly speaking, we have been best at reaching the middle and upper middle class socioeconomic groups. And so as we've drawn those circles, we have recognised that we don't just have a geographical issue, we have a socio-economic issue as well that we've needed to think about and needed to address. There are one or two others um, that you'll see in a moment as I illustrate what we've done that uh, come under that category. There's the first motivation, it's reaching new people. Second creating space in existing congregations. It was the old Eddie Gibbs of the church planting kind of movement and the church growth movement, rather, the church growth movement of the early 80s at Fuller, I think, who came up with the, whether right or not, I don't know, but came up with this line that when you are 80% full at church, you are full so that you won't grow any more. I don't know whether that's the case, but I was at a ch Baptist church in our region two Sundays ago preaching that uh, seats 150, and there were 170 people there on that Sunday. There were at least 20 kids sitting on parents' laps. Now, I don't think they can grow anymore. They know that. And it seems to me that they've got two options. The first option, which is what the option many churches have taken in England, is to be rather smugly content with being full on a Sunday and uh, move into what uh, your Archbishop of Sydney calls chug-along church. That is, you're full and it's comfortable being full. And for this Baptist church that seats 150 with 170 there, there's a very real sense in which it's possible to know everybody and they like being together and they like being full. If they choose chug-along, they A, won't grow, and B, will decline. They haven't got room to grow, and so soon we'll move into uh, decline. So that's one choice. The other choice is to find a way of creating a space in the mother church, and you can only do that if people move out. Now, there are all kinds of ways that they could do that. They could move out and and create more congregations on an existing site. They don't have, by the way, the option to redevelop their site. Their site is fully at capacity in terms of development. That would be another option, but it's not their option. So they've either got to uh, work out a way of creating more congregations on their existing site, or they've got to find a way of planting a congregation. Now, they're going to go for the latter of those, and I I'm saying hooray for them. They've noticed they're full, and they want to create space a, at the mother congregation, so that they, that can grow, and they don't go into chug-along, but can think about how they will grow. And by planting out, 
they're hoping to see that plant grow as well. And here's the third reason I've detected church planting happening in our area. It is to encourage more people in Christian service. Now, I don't know whether this is universally the case, but in England, this is culturally true. This wouldn't be true of the, Mer the American megachurches, but it's culturally true in England that if you have a congregation of 100, you will have X percent of people serving. If you have a congregation of 200, you do not have 2x of people serving. And if you have a congregation of 500, you do not have 5x of people serving. In other words, it's our experience that the larger the congregation, the less people are being trained for service and used in service. Both trained for service and used in service. And so, smaller congregations, though I'm not sure what the number, the optimum number is, smaller congregations can, though not necessarily, smaller congregations can create more ministry opportunities, which can create a greater sense of people belonging and obeying the gospel in terms of serving one another at church it can create less passengers and therefore can create a greater understanding of truly what the local church is meant to be which if Ephesians 4 is right is about every person being given grace under word ministry that all may use their gifts so that people may grow up into maturity I've got a fourth by the way a a fourth motivation, which is very closely allied to two and three, is to re-energise re the static congregation. You see, when the church has become static, the danger is, is that the Christians in that congregation become static. And we've seen that church planting is one way of getting the Christians in that congregation to think of themselves growing again in term, spiritually, and of course leaving back behind people who've got to grow uh, spiritually uh, as well. Now there are probably plenty of other reasons for uh, church planting than those, but those are the motivations uh, we've seen, and they're not mutually exclusive. So plenty of crossover of motivations uh, has been in uh, evidence too. That has le led us to generally four kinds of church plants that we've seen over the last um, seven years. And, uh, and if I use the names of churches, then you'll be able to go and check them up on the website. These really do exist and all of that kind of, that, that, that kind of thing. The first, and here's the hardest kind of church plant that we've done, and it is what we call virgin territory church plant. Virgin territory church plant. That is to plant a church into an area where there is no Bible teaching church that we can discern at present. Now for those of us who are Anglican, immediately we talk about virgin territory church plant, we place ourselves into an English difficulty. I don't know whether you have the same in Australia, but in England, everywhere is within a Church of England parish. 
everywhere. Every blade of grass in, in England is within some parish. So the moment I talk about a virgin territory church plant, I am making a judgment about the, at least the Church of England ministry in that place, and probably about everybody else who's there too. That makes me enemy number one amongst those people. Because I've made a value judgment, or not just me, but our network of churches, we are making a value judgment about, about the church scene in that patch. And the people who are doing, who are at least have got churches in that patch, immediately feel very angry, threatened, and negative towards us. Friends, I can't see any any way around that being the experience. I just can't. I just cannot work out how we can. It seems to me, for example, it, where we live, a shipbuilding area like Barrow has got a population of sixty thousand people. Wikipedia calls it calls Barrow the largest cul-de-sac in England. It is true, because when you get to Barrow, there is nowhere else to go but turn around in the roundabout and come away again. There is no evangelical church... I'm happy for this to be recorded, because I'd love someone to ring me up and say otherwise. There is no evangelical church that we have detected in Barrow. That's a population of 60,000 people. There are plenty of churches in Barrow. The Anglicans are there, the Methos are there, the Catholics are there. There is a very tiny, exclusive Brethren church that's there, which I wouldn't send my best friend to, by the way. And therefore, there are plenty of places in our area where there is virgin territory. And that seems to be seems to me to be our number one priority. That has come from doing the circles and seeing the gaps, and we have had to plant virgin territory churches. Now, we've had to do that in remarkable places. We've had to do that in the five university cities of the Northwest. In the centre of our five university cities, seven years ago, there was not an evangelical Bible teaching church. That is, it's a shock. I, we found it an absolute shock. And that became our first priority, for reasons I might get on to later on. We believed that we had to see churches planted in those five university areas. And, uh, well, we saw a church, we've planted a church in the city centre of Manchester. We started that one with six people. That's against all the American books, by the way. But we started it with six people. Uh, we started a church in the city centre of Liverpool. Liverpool, a city centre where it's a city of a million people, but 40 years ago, everybody moved out. And yet in the last seven years, people have moved back in. Huge redevelopment in the city centre. 70,000 people under 30 living now in the city centre of Liverpool. We had to plant a church there. And, uh, and we planted a church there with 16 or 17 people. Virgin Territory, we saw a new housing development being built between two towns. It's actually going to join pretty well two towns in the northwest. At 9,000 new dwellings going to be put up, representing 16,000 people going to live there. The developer's not going to build a church there. Developers in England now don't place spaces for new churches. They would have done 30 years ago, but that's gone now. They just want the maximum money they can get from 
building houses. Well, I don't blame them. If I was pagan, that's what I'd be doing too. So we had to, we felt we had to plant a church there. Some of these suburbs, uh, Virgin Territory, Sir Egberth in a suburb of, of Liverpool, no Bible teaching church there. We had to plant there. And then some of the more, the more socially, economically deprived areas. So in the suburbs of Liverpool, Halewood, which is where Jaguar cars are made. No church there. Or Speak, which is where John Lennon Airport is in Liverpool. The most deprived area in England. Highest unemployment rate in England. We thought we've got to plant a church there. We're going to plant a church in Morecambe. Uh, again, a very uh, seaside, old English seaside town that's now really gone to the dogs. We've, and we've got to plant there, and we're going to do that in, sept in September. Uh, so Virgin Territory Church Plants. Now, can I say, those Virgin Territory Church Plants have all been planted uh, pretty well, not from one single church, because they're Virgin Territory. There isn't a mother church that can that can easily plant into those kind of areas. And so what we've done is, as a partnership work together, identified the areas and thought to ourselves, is there a way in which we can see a church planted in that area? What is it going to take to see a church? Say, for example, let me give you the city centre of Liverpool one. What is it going to take for a city centre church in Liverpool to start, which... It did so um, in 2005, September. Well, we needed a group of people. Where are we going to get a group of people? There's no, there's, no, there's no church near there to plant a group of people there. Well, what you have to do is find a group of people who are willing to move. That's pretty costly, isn't it? That's not easy. All our Virgin Territory church plants have been planted with a, at least one full-time worker from the start. That's just a pragmatic thing. I don't think you need to do that. You know, Paul could go to Corinth and tent make. You don't, it's not a biblical thing, but just getting going. A full-time worker has been a real help in our church plants in our patch. So we've, we've wanted to. Now, they, they cost money. Where are you going to get the money from? And that's where a partnership of churches has been able to do something that no individual church could have done on, uh, on its own. And most of our Virgin Territory churches, church plants have happened by that means. Us as a partnership working together to find people, find a pastor, stroke leader, stroke church planter, whatever you call them, and find the money to pay them. And boy... That's hard work, because, do you know, my experience has been persuading our partner churches to give away people and give away money are the two hardest things to persuade them to give away. The people we want are the best people. We don't want the disaffected of where they've got. We want, we want people who are going to be motivated to, to, to do evangelism. We want people and we want money. And do you know, in my experience, the time is never right to give away people or money. You notice that? It's never the right time to give away people or money. Because we're all stretched where we are, aren't we? Or is that not the case where you are? We're all stretched where we are, and our budgets are always at maximum where we are. Very few churches have got loads of dosh flying around thinking, what can we do with our extra dosh? 
I don't know why that is, but that's, that's just how it is where we are. So the first kind of style of church, I need to move quickly, the first kind of style of church is a virgin territory church plant. We've needed to be really... There's a postman. Or a package deliverer. And you can, you can, uh, I'm going to give you, you can ask questions um, in a moment. But uh, virgin territory. Second, specific people groups. Again, these aren't mutually exclusive. Specific people groups. Because we wanted uh, long term, and I'll come to this in a moment later on, because we wanted to see MTS students uh, raised up, it was crystal clear to us that we needed churches in our five university towns. So we planted churches specifically thinking we want to reach that group of people. Not because we are anti-heterogeneous church, and not because we don't believe the gospel is for all, but we did believe we needed to see students one for Christ, and we needed to plant churches that would be culturally uh, relevant and work for students. So, for example, in the church plant that we did in Manchester, there are some, there are one or two really quite faithful churches in Manchester that are of the very ultra-reformed kind of style, Reformed Baptist style, where, don't knock me, the pastor's a good bloke, and don't, don't mishear me, the, the people there are Christians, but culturally the way they do church is just not going to engage students at all. Or, for example, when we planted a church in Liverpool, I went to see the Bishop of Liverpool and said to him, who was once would have called himself an evangelical, but now isn't, I said to him, Bishop, what is your strategy for reaching the city centre of Liverpool with the university building huge new halls of residence in the city centre? I said, what's your strategy for reaching them? He said, we've got the cathedral. I said, really, do you think Coral Evensong is going to be the means by which 20-year-old students are going to be one for Christ? And if you really think that is the way... I think you blow your brains out. I went to your Anglican Cathedral to church on Sunday, and it was a good meeting. But it still had four choral songs that were sung. And I just could, I thought, well, the students wouldn't, in England wouldn't go to that. Even though it was evangelically sound, and the sermon was good, and, and the welcome was warm, just the style of the meeting would turn our students off. I don't know whether that's the case here. So we needed to, we've needed to plant churches to reach specific people groups. Here's a church plant that we've done to reach a specific people group. In the area where I live, we detected that there are people with learning disabilities and we have got, had no one at church with learning disabilities. So we've planted a church specifically for people with learning disabilities. It's been very labour intensive. It's been very hard work. But we believe the Gospels for them. And so we planted a church for people with learning disabilities. And we've seen 30 uh, people, people with learning disabilities coming along regularly to, to that congregation. And the great thing is they've all got carers, so they come too. So you get, you get a double bite at the evangelistic cherry, which is, which is terrific. A third style of church plant we've done is the revitalization kind of church plant. Those have taken two styles. The first, which has been the easiest, has been the, the evangelical church that has been theologically orthodox 
but has grown very small. And it's desperately needed revitalization. We've done at least four or five of those in the last few years. Uh, Paul, you'll know uh, Danny Rolander, who uh, is in now, now in Lancaster. That's one of our university towns. That was one of the ones we first saw uh, needed to be done. We thought, how do we plant a church in Lancaster? Well, Virgin Territory was uh, immediately what we thought of, until we discovered an old Brethren church that had got down to 15 members in a prime location with a really good, with good plant in the city centre. And they said, they, we came across discovering they were about to close. And so we tried to make overtures as a partnership towards their elders. There were two elders there. And we put in their mind, would they be up for having a pastor with four young kids come and plant their family and some other people from our network of churches into that congregation. And to their great credit, that group of 14 people said they were up for it. They knew death was the only alternative, and so they were up for a revitalization. And it's happened. Now, we had to be pretty clear with them that... Uh, that a new pastor coming to them, who we as a partnership agreed to underwrite his salary for three years, that we as a partnership encouraging a family with, with four kids to come, was, who wanted to reach out to the students in Lancaster, of which there are 16,000, uh, we knew that that was going to bring enormous change to that Sunday morning meeting, and we did our very best to in, in, enable the church members who were there to know what they were letting themselves in for. And, uh, and that church is growing. It's uh, about 180 on a Sunday morning uh, now. And that's been a, a great revitalization. We've done the same in Preston and in Carlisle and, and in Speak and in one or two other places as well. Uh, the other kind of revitalization that we've seen three of uh, so far working okay, but I think there are all kinds of dangers, and that is to take the theologically off-beam church and plant a pastor and some others to see that church revitalised. Now, that doesn't just need numerically revitalising, it needs theologically revitalising from the very centre. Now, let me say that in my experience, that takes a very certain kind of person and group of people to do that kind of revitalisation. I don't think that is for many. I think in the history of England has been the history of evangelicals going to non-evangelical parishes and then becoming non-evangelicals rather than the other way around. So it is a particularly risky kind of revitalisation. But we have seen... Uh, at least three people in the last seven years pull it off. It has happened with great pain and great difficulty, at great cost to them, and almost without exception at great numerical loss, as those who were already there 
did not respond well to the gospel, by and large, some have, but by and large, not respond well to the gospel, and therefore have to, they found, they found themselves moving on. It's very painful for a new pastor to go somewhere where there's been 70 people, and within two years there's 30 people. Um, but sadly that's, I think, been not because of them. I don't think that it's because they've been awkward and, 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 and unloving. I think it's sometimes just the way that the gospel... People don't like it and move. And then let me say, uh, the fourth kind of church plant that we've done is that re-energising of the mother congregation. We've seen a number of those happen, and I, th and I think they do need to happen. I'll tell you, this, just because I know it best, it's the church that I go to, and uh, our 11 o'clock congregation, when, when I went to the church, uh, and uh, Paul, again, you know the vicar very well, um, we were at a regular 11 o'clock and 6.30 congregation, and our 11 o'clock was full. And uh, we had one of your uh, Australian ministers called Philip Jensen come and visit us. This was three years ago, and he came to our 11 o'clock congregation, and he said to our rector, he said, what are you going to do with this congregation? And I think our rector scratched his head and said, well, I wasn't thinking of doing very much with it. And he said, you are full. What are you going to do? And so we decided to plant two congregations out of our 11 o'clock congregation. They have been very costly and very painful. Because the rector asked 60 people to start a new congregation at 9 o'clock in another building in the town. And asked a further 30 people to plant another congregation in a school hall at the other end of town. Can you imagine 90 people leaving the mother congregation, which was at 240? Well, they went down to 150 overnight. The breakup of relationships was very, very painful. We planted these congregations of 60 and 30, each with their own full-time worker, which meant that the mother congregation was left under-resourced. But we wanted to give these two churches, new congregations, fighting chances of making a go for it. So it's very costly, very costly in terms of the breaking up of relationships. Church planting has been, everyone I've been involved in has been painful and difficult and costly. And let me say, we have made loads of mistakes. I'd like to tell you that everything's been plain sailing and it's been very, um, and they've all been remarkable successes. But that would be to lie. Let me tell you, I'll give you three of the principal mistakes I think that we've, been, we've made. Um, we've done a, number, a handful of church plants that I don't think have really been church plants. That is, what we've done is we've created an extra meeting without enabling the people who go to that meeting to either have the energy or the resources to genuinely be a new church plant. What they've been is a new church meeting. And because, I'll give you one example, one church was planted from across a number of churches to start a five o'clock congregation in a virgin geographical area. And they started meeting at five o'clock. But these people were also going along to 10.30 at the church where they were meant to have been planted from. And they neither had the energy nor the kind of permission 
to start new relationships in the area where they'd planted. They were still doing all the stuff that they were doing in their mother churches. And as a result, that church plant of 30 is, guess what? A church plant of 30. And that's been going for nearly, well, it must be 20 months by uh, September last year, 18 months, something like that. And I think that it would have been better for us if we could have persuaded the mother churches to release those people from all commitments that they had at the church they were at and to be completely fixated on the new church and area they were starting and moving to and for us to have found a dedicated staff member to lead it. We've done a few of those and none of them have really worked. Yes, you're telling me you should have thought about that and worked that out. We've been slow. We're English. We're slow on the uptake. Secondly, in our revitalization of churches, we have not been clear enough about the, the, the impact that a revitalization will make of either theological change or stylistic change. I think we've needed to be much clearer with the group of people we've gone to work alongside of what the changes are going to be, both theologically and just in terms of feel of how the services meetings will be ordered. And we have lost a number of people from church that I think we could have, we could have kept. We were winnable if we just hadn't been like bulls in china shops. And I regret that greatly. And if you're listening on tape and I, you were one of the ones hurt by that, I apologise. And I think our other big mistake is not being upfront enough about to people when asking them to be involved in a church plant about the personal costs they're going to make. Uh, they know the financial costs, but financial costs, whilst real, are not, in my experience, as big as the personal costs of leaving a congregation to start a new congregation. Of course, no one's saying you can't be friends. But there is a breaking some measure of relationships in order to have time to start something new and energise in something new. So I regret the mistakes we've made, and not, but I'm sure we'll make them and plenty more in the future. There you are. Do you want to ask a question? I've got, I've got a question. Oh, that's far to away. Kick, to kick it yeah, off. go on then. Uh, just with the first, the first mistake... Um, really, really excited about all the encouraging things, but the mistakes you learn lots from. The first mistake in terms of uh, uh, creating a church plan and, and starting with 30 people and not giving an identity and a style of its own. Uh, when do you close that down? Do you close that down? What's the next step? Have you, have you thought about that? Uh, I think the one, the one I've, I'm referring to, I think will close down, and I, but, but not because we're not committed to that geographical area. I think we've just got to draw a line under that one and say... We didn't get it right from the start. It was a bit of, it, it, it was for the best intentions. We didn't make it work. We've got to, we've got to go back to those people, and find a group, either them or others, who could be committed to the church in that air, in that area. I, th I think, I, th I, th I think we'll have to stop, and give it six months to nine months and start again. And I think it's, I, and I, I rejoice at, at that. Let, let me say that. It's been really good for us to have some failures. If all your church plants are successes, you will not do many church plants because the other guys who are thinking they might have a go are f fearful that they'll be the first failure. And who wants to be the first failure? 
and 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 if we don't have a go at it, so we we've got to fail sometimes to give the other guys a permission to have a go, and it's okay to fail, at this, in the sense of you've got to have a go, and if it does, if the Lord doesn't prosper it for whatever reason, we had a go, at least we had a go. But it needs failures to do that. You can only keep going planting churches if you've got faith. I know that sounds, that you won't read this in any of the American paperbacks, but it seems to me you will only keep planting churches if you've had some failures. Because it's failures that give people permission to have a go. And it doesn't, it's not the end of the world, either for their ministry or how we view them for the future. Uh, um, so, so failures are important. Quick questions, other questions. I've got a bunch of questions just from what he said. But Paul. Yeah, Paul. Uh, you said that, and I agree with you, that church planting we need is people, a Bible, and as well as to teach the Bible. And you also said it is advantageous to have a full-time worker. That was entirely pragmatic. Yeah. Yeah. Can you go through some of the, uh, the advantages of Oh, sure. I think that, generally speaking, if you go into a virgin territory place, uh, the people who are going in don't know the place where they're going. They, they don't know, they, you, you've got, unless you've done an enormous amount of research beforehand. And, and therefore, people who have got full-time jobs and full-time other commitments, who are very willing volunteers and, and very willing to be up for it, just haven't got the time... A, to understand the area and therefore to know where to put the evangelistic energy and the evangelistic push. Uh, B, to have someone to have the springboard to do the in, some of the initial evangelistic activity that others can build on has been really useful uh, as well. So I don't think it's impossible to do it. Of course, you know, Corinth, Paul did it in Corinth. It's not impossible but every experience where we've done it with a full-time worker, we've seen that the, um, that the growth has been quicker. Um, so you, you just described his role very much as the, the evangelist and you know, the area, and that's really helpful because I think that the reason that people here uh, put so much emphasis on, on a full-time past is often to meet the needs of the existing to make sure that they're being pastor well and, and cared for. But you described as a full-time pastor who is knowing the area, thinking about outreach and evangelism. Yes, I think... I, I think it's a bit of a refreshing... I think so. Look, if you... If, if you Christchurch Liverpool started with 17 people, which isn't very big, and it started with a full-time paid elder. It had another two people who were elders as well. So it had three elders, one full-time, two... Uh, in their part in the part time now i don't think it took andrew a full time job to pastor teach 17 or 18 people uh, he he could he could prepare a sermon lead a bible study and look after the pastoral emergencies of 17 or 18 people and still have time for doing the kind of networking, uh, beavering away, doing the kind of cold calling he was, that was planted in the city centre of Liverpool. He did all the kind of... He went, went into the student reses with invitations, with... Uh, we, uh, just needed someone with time to do that. 
Yes. I don't know your name, brother. Uh, Cole. Hi, Cole. Yeah. Um, thinking about gospel communities and missional communities and so on, um, what are your expectations of the 17 in Liverpool, the lay people, in terms of their life and evangelistic gifts and activities, working with a full-time guy? Um, are they there as evangelists or is there a uh, sorry, the, the, the question is, what's our expectation of the non-full-time paid workers who are involved in a church plant, in, 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 a, in, in the core group that starts the church? Uh, our expectation is that once they've started, they are church, and so they will have the gifts they need in order to be church, of whom some will have greater evangelistic strengths than others. And it's our hope that in a smallish core team, those who have got those eva particular evangelistic abilities will be given the maximum amount of opportunity to exercise those, whilst recognising there'll be other things that need to be, need to be done. Um, so that church, although it started with 17, its first Sunday had 34, and I don't think it's, ever been it's never been below that, which meant they needed people to do all kinds of other activities as well. But they did have people who's, who had a certain evangelistic out, outlook and ability who needed all the time to be kept free, to, to, to be beavering away in that, in that regard. Uh, without, without, without creating, I don't know how whether we did this well or not, but without creating the kind of view that they somehow are the, the elite A crack team and that they are somehow better than the, those who haven't got those similar kind of aptitudes and gifts. Just related to that, are you always starting with a public meeting? Um, some of our guys are experimenting with networks and evangelism through their homes and relationships leading up to a public church meeting 12 months down the track. Thank you. No, and in fact the church that's going to start in Morecambe, which is on the west coast, uh, they identified the minister and a core team in September. They did a Christmas evangelistic thing as the first kind of thing that they've done. They're running Christianity Explored at the moment for a, for a handful uh, of people. They've met every Monday morning to pray as a core team. Uh, they've, they've tried to already work out what networks they have and where they're able to network uh, people. They've done a huge amount of thinking already. They don't go, they're not planning to go public until sep till September. And I think that's been thoroughly healthy for that, for that group of people. And we've done, a number of our churches have happened a lot. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the one that's planted in a new town between two towns, they appointed their pastor a year last September. Um, and that's, they've been meeting and and playing football with the local football, the blokes have been playing football with the local football team and all kinds of, of things, getting themselves known. They, they did the carol service in the old people's home that's already up and running. But they, have, they didn't go public till last September. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I, all, all kinds of things like that. Um, and, and it would be fair to say that in one or two, in, no, more than one of those cases, uh, as that core team have met, there's been a little bit of shifting in and out of who the core team are, as, as one or two of them have discovered, oh, I'm already missing my friends, or, or I'm not quite sure I'm up for this, or this isn't quite me, and, um, and that's, been okay. that's okay. Because, because although I've talked a lot about kind of programs of church planting, 
we're actually dealing with individual people in every single one of these, and uh, and people are people. And they're pulled out of their, their main church meeting, their, their church. Oh, the the one in, the one in, the one that's happening in Morecambe at the moment. They as a core team have been doing lots. That they've met together as a like a Bible study group, like a growth group, and have been praying together every Monday morning. But they're still at the moment going to the a couple of churches that they're attached to on Sunday mornings, but they know what's happening in September. That yeah. And their churches know what's happening to them in September. It's all all happening with approval and blessing and, yeah. Hello. Hi. I, I was just wondering with the Virgin Territory idea, um, what about uh, uh, like geographical territories where you do have a, a, an evangelical Oh, it could be. Um, the, the, the church that uh, happened in Speak, which is next door to a very significantly large evangelical church, now, the most obvious thing was for them to plant a church in that socio-economic group. But for whatever reason, they weren't up for that. Now, I spent quite a long time talking with their elders about whether, whether they were going to do it or not. And... And after a while, it became clear that they just, just couldn't see that that's what either they thought they could do or should do. For, uh, I'm not sure I agreed with that, but that's just the way it was. So I said to them, look, would you mind if we, if we as a network of churches have a go at planting there? And they said, no, go for it. Um, I think the harder thing that happens for us temperamentally as evangelicals is when we've already got a cluster of good evangelical churches around and somebody comes and plants in where we already are. Um, And and part of me thinks I've got to be big enough and gracious enough to cope with that and cope that there's enough people there for everybody. Uh, And um, and yet yet part of me still thinks, that's mad. Um, So when the... When the new frontiers, oh, that probably doesn't mean anything to you, when the kind of, they are the reformed charismatics, the more like C.J. Mahaney kind of kind of people, when they've come and planted in areas where we've already planted, part of me wants to go and punch them in the nose. But that's just my sinfulness most of the time. Yeah, I don't think it's logic, I don't think it's the most sensible thing. I, I'd say to them, go to Barrow. We haven't worked out how to do Barrow yet. Go to Barrow. Um But generally speaking, there's, there's enough. Okay, there's, there, there are enough in our area. I don't know about Sydney, but in our area, there are enough people to go round. So we don't need to feel too threatened by each other. Yes, our special needs people have needed a special church yeah, plant. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We we use at our special needs church plant, we use a vocabulary of 600 words. And it is a great exercise if you get asked to do the preach at that, to preach using only 600 words. I found it very humbling indeed to realise what a complete windbag I am and what a lot of words I use that nobody... And if the, and lots of people, other, that people don't understand. Yeah, I, I, um, yeah this, we evangelicals have debated for the last 50 years about homogeneous and heterogeneous. But sometimes... they. I want to be a pragmatist and say, uh, on the last day, 
I don't want to hear the Lord Jesus say, why didn't you think about reaching that group of people? And me say, well, because we always thought we had to have completely heterogeneous church before we could kind of reach that kind of group of people. I, I'm not sure, this is, I've got no Bible for this, but I'm not sure that the luxury of the urgency of the gospel allows us that much. I, I, I may be completely wrong, um, but, but, but uh, it's, like, it's like every time I talk about Gartia, about planting a church in a virgin territory, we know we'll upset the Anglicans let alone anyone else. You know you're going to upset the Anglican, Anglicans. And I've had ooh, handfuls of Anglican ministers who I've sat down and they've said to me, please don't plant here because this is my patch. Now, at the end of the day, I don't think I'll be able to look the Lord Jesus in the face on the last day and he say, why didn't you plant in that part of Lancashire? And I... My, the answer, if I give the answer, oh, because there's already a Church of England church there that's liberal and has got a woman minister, I don't think that's going to wash. So, I, I, I'm, so it, we're going to upset people by that. Um, the question is to do with how you communicate the personal cost. Um, I'd like to pick your brains on how you've done that. Both to the people who are planting, but more importantly, who stay with the mother church and feel the loss of relationship and how you communicate to the that mother church what it's going to cost them relationally but when you actually do say yes how do we communicate the cost involved to those who are going to plant and those who are being left behind from a plant um, I think that it's very very difficult I don't think we've done it well uh, much of the time one thing we have tried to do is to excite the planting group that it is enormous privilege to give away. It is the very nature of the gospel. It, it's, it's part of the paradox of the gospel that we're not very good at believing that giving is receiving. At the very heart of the gospel is that paradox that to lose your life is to gain it. To give away is to receive. That is true financially in Philippians 4, isn't it? The Philippians gave away and Paul reckoned it was credited to their account. That's a, that is an upside-down way of thinking. So humanly speaking, the mother church who's giving away people will always be thinking, I'm giving. I think we need to help them to see that the gospel calls on them to see that they are giving, which is receiving, that they are the beneficiaries of it. If for no other, how exciting it is to be involved in the, in the uh, seeking to reach a gr another group of people for the Lord Jesus. And that group of people, if, they are, if that group of people are converted, they will be the mother church's joy and crown. Kind of in the 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20 language. And I, I think that we just need to preach that. And, and, and we need to keep church, our experience, we when we started as a partnership, we put church planting at the top of the agenda. So we've never stopped talking about it. So it's not new for us as a partnership of, of churches. So every minister's meeting, every annual conference, we're always talking about church planting because we want, we want it to be part of the, the lifeblood of our, of, our, of our churches. Now, 
that is not to diminish the real cost in terms of relationship pulls. So when we, when we saw a church planted in this new community between our two towns, one of the couples who went were the family who had children the nearest age to our eldest son. We haven't seen them for the last nine months. That's been really costly for us as a family. They were amongst our best, kind of closest group of people we knew. Um, and we needed to know, we needed to be told that and we needed to, be, to know that and needed to uh, see that that was a good gospel cost. Um, I wonder whether, do you think it's any accident that in Acts 13, in um, An Antioch, when we're told that the church there commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go on the first missionary journey. Do you think it's any surprise that Luke tells us that of the five named word ministers that there are in that church, and yet they set apart Paul and Barnabas? So 40% of their ministry team, of their eldership, got given away that Sunday, whenever they met. That's, that's, that's a big giving away. And I wonder whether that's recorded so that we, we understand that giving away really is costly.